Welcome to Make That Paper, the show where we talk about all the crazy jobs we do to make the cash we need to support our artistic dreams. And for donuts and fitness yes. classes. Yes. And more donuts. And more fitness classes. Sure. On today's episode, we're going to find out about the dishing out methadone duty, the psychotherapy peculiarity, and then let's pirouette over to the bar method breakdown. We are your hosts, Jamie Parker Stickle. And Jason Bieber. And Jason tries to put tongue twisters in there for me every day, and I have Invisalign, everyone, so it's real fucking hard. Here we keep going. On this episode, we have a dynamic nonfiction writer, I love her so much, whose work has appeared in Salon, NBC News, Think, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Girl X, and the Coachella Review. She's also a licensed psychotherapist practicing in New York and L.A., and is the author of the advice column, Ask Pallavi for Girl X. We are so excited to have her on the show. I am so excited. I cannot even believe she hasn't met Jason Bieber before. But please welcome the marvelous Pallavi Yator. Yeah. Yeah, that was an amazing and incredible intro. And yeah, nice to meet you, Jason. The pleasure is all mine. People don't understand, like, I talk about Jason Bieber all the time. Yes, so that's true. I'll vouch for that. It's sort of weird when somebody, he knows this. He's I know it. It makes um, me uncomfortable to this day, but I'm well aware of it. I yeah, mean, 14 years good. later. Um, yeah. It's so incredible that I met, I went to, so I have mom friends at my child's school, and they're amazing, and I love it so much. And everyone said, you will meet your best friends at, at this stage. And it, it's true. They're these great ladies. But one of them had never met Jason Bieber. But I talk about him so much. That after a brunch or drinks that we went to, um, just the girls, just the moms, he was dropping Jack off at school. And this woman walked right up to him in the crowd and was like, you're Jason Bieber, aren't you? <laughs> like, she knew who he was immediately. And he was like, I'm used to this. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I know what this is. I know what's we happening primed, here. We're primed to love you already. Aww. He's on the sitcom of my life. Like, you are the, the sitcom of my life. So everyone knows you. You're like a movie star to me. Everyone knows your name. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in my very small self-encompassed cheers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. Just, okay. It's very comforting. Um, I just want everyone to know that this is a very special guest for me. It might make me cry. I haven't cried in a minute, but this is a very Aww. special guest for me because this is one of my friends from UCR, and she's so talented. And the minute I met her... Um, it was like a door opened up in my world to like, oh my gosh, this nonfiction writer is the coolest person I think I may have ever met who writes nonfiction. Okay. <laughs> uh, nice. Okay. And, she, and a bird. No, <laughs> never. Not a bird at all. It was true. And like, you were so motivated and like, um, your screenwriting is so funny and natural and witty and like, it's this the kind of stuff that I want to read and want to see and want to watch. And, you know, when you go to grad school for creative writing, sometimes you get really highbrow, like, I don't understand this, but I'm going to pretend that this, that I did yeah. and just be up there with everybody else. And then you understood all of that and then also brought it down to my level for me and wrote stuff that I was like, oh, this, this, this is for me. She did this for me, right? Like, Aww. you're so special. And she's, you guys, she's an upcoming um, 
almost soon to be super famous screenwriter. So bookmark this episode because you knew me. her when I knew her when. Wait, I have a really, I have a funny story about that. Because I wrote an essay for one of my workshops about, like, very candidly what it's like to be a therapist. <laughs> like, it was, here is stuff that is very annoying and infuriating to me. And so I, like, wrote this essay and I was finally just kind of, like, expressing stuff that I'd been sitting with forever. And it was very cathartic. And <laughs> it's getting workshop, And someone goes... Uh, I don't think I'd want this person as my therapist. <laughs> and then the professor was like, uh, really? Because I do. I know. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to say, like, I approve of a therapist that can just be a human being, you know, yeah. and understand, like, that not everything is science. Sometimes it's art and we're dealing with people's emotions, 100%. right? I love, that's very well said. And it is, it's nuanced. There's no one size fits all formula to this because every single person has their own collection of experiences and depth and layers. So yeah, I mean, it, I can understand, like I think that that workshop kind of showed me the reality of what I already knew, which is that a lot of people expect therapists to just be these vessels and mm -hmm. to be there for them in service of them. And then there are other people who are like, but I want to know that you're a real human too. Right. Um, so I'm definitely leading more over to that side where I'm like, if I don't allow myself to be a real human and if I allow myself just to be a vessel, I'm going to be miserable. <laughs> Probably yeah. not a great therapist. Yeah, well, probably not. <laughs> but let's talk about that for a second, because I think that your side hustle is, a, for a lot of people, their full-time career forever without another yeah. aspiration. Like, that was the aspiration. Yeah. Um, Pallavi is a therapist, like we said in the intro, and she is currently, you, you have clients, but you're also um, <clears throat> a very, um, you're visible online therapist you know you do a lot of um podcasts and uh giving of information and i want to talk about that for a minute because when i see that and then i read comments i'm always like she's not giving a brief therapy session like in the comment section oh my God, like some people who are like oh but i have this problem with that and this is why that doesn't work for me and i'm just like well this is where i'm out <laughs> right I gave you a nugget and I, this is not my job anymore. I'm now turning right. comments off. Please yeah. don't diagnose each other with narcissism in the comment section, assholes. Like, that's what I want to say, but I'm one of those people that just um, stalks. I'm a ghost reader. I don't comment on yeah. anything you ever. You don't want to get pulled into that stuff. Yeah, don't suck me in. <laughs> um, but I'm just like interested. Save it for trolling politics. <laughs> right? right, exactly. There are plenty but, of those out there. They'll take care of it for you. But everyone's an armchair psychologist now since, I mean, I probably since before social media because gossiping, but in social media, like complete strangers are telling people how to fix their problems yeah. and then they become influencers. And I'm <laughs> like, um, but that an influencer is not a degreed uh, profession. So maybe you're not supposed to be giving this advice. Mm -hmm. Isn't that annoying for you? It is. I mean, like that, it's hard. I think what annoys me about it is that it kind of dilutes what the profession is and it creates a lot of misunderstanding about what people should expect from therapy and therapists. 
you know, mm. we, we aren't here to dispense advice for you because you are the best person to know what to do for you. We are just here to help you uncover that. And so people who tell people what to do are actually not helping. And so, but there's a real misconception about like, but I need advice and I, that's what I want you for. It's like, well, that's actually not going to be the best thing for you. There's also, I mean, like, I, I know there are people I went to grad school with who I'm like actively concerned about being out there. For. So even people who are licensed and qualified. Look at I Jason know. Bieber's face right now. <laughs> well, I, I want names. I mean, <laughs> but also, I, I, I mean, I think. Yeah, if but you, also if you start seeking one of them out. I'll let you know. Okay, but, but also, I mean, you do have an advice column. Yeah, but if you read my advice column, it's very much like I don't know you, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know what's right. best for you. But here is how I would want you to be thinking about it. Here is what I want you to yeah. dig into in order for you to understand what's the right thing to do here. And also. Um, most people who write advice columns do not have a medical or professional degree in the business. Yeah, they're, they're writers. writers. Yeah. <laughs> You're uniquely I mean, qualified with, with both. Thank you. I appreciate it. There is another therapist writer who has an advice column. Lori Gottlieb has one for The Atlantic. And you'll read similarly in her, she's kind of like, she stays away from trying to tell people what to do. And you can, sometimes mm. it's frustrating to read, but it's like, you can't really do that when you're a therapist. Right. You could be sued because you're licensed, but you know, writers like, Hey, I didn't say I was, I'm yeah. even, not even using a real name. You don't even actually know who I am. Right, exactly. um, I give advice all the time. It he does. You're entitled good. to. Everybody is. I can no, give advice don't tell to him people that. I know, but not as a therapist. Yeah. Right. Do not tell. Don't give Jason Bieber permission. <laughs> That's the last thing he yeah. needs. I was told by a professional therapist that I can give advice. So. <laughs> uh oh. No. My therapist, and I adore her, told me once. Um, I thought this was a burn too, but it took a lot of time. Like it was like a compliment in a burn. I'm calling back. And, um, but she said, um, Jamie, you are not a professional. If you're giving advice to people or trying to fix their problems, like who made you God? Like it was like, and I was like, <laughs> Oh, snap. Yeah. And I was like, I, I deeply I think that might've just been a straight burn. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, but no, but she, but it's because, you know, there are people in our family lives that, you know, call us on the regular to fix sure. and solve problems for them. Mm. And these relationships, like parental relationships are difficult to, to navigate sometimes. And so she was like, and I was beating myself up because I didn't know how to fix this person. Right. And she was like, so it was like, but who gave you permission to play God? So instead of like looking at it from the perspective of like that it's an expectation that I do it and not me not realizing that I am not. Yeah. And all, I am just a human that is trying to make it through my own life path and not try to fix the people that raised me because they have, you know, they need me. Um, it was like the best advice I'd ever gotten, actually. I mean, she is the best therapist besides you ever for me that I've ever had, but I never had you. So it <laughs> makes sense. Um, but like, I love her still. Like I call her whenever. And um, I have to tell you, 
there are some really freaking good therapists out there who love their job and mm-hmm. just want people to be well. Mm-hmm. And that is like straight up God's work. I'm like, no one gave me permission, but clearly he gave you permission. (laughs) (laughs) Like the people who really like invested in their training and want to be better at this. Like, I really value the time that I put in doing that because that expertise has been very useful. Yeah. And at the same time, I think my struggle has been like just how much it's tempting to put yourself on the back burner or put yourself aside or even become sort of like a blank invisible canvas of a person when you're doing this work especially when I have these other creative goals and I always wanted to be a writer and I took sort of this side route into this other career and neglected that part of myself for so long so that were you collecting for that side of yourself yeah I like that and I'm I will take it yeah (laughs) You are collecting for this side of yourself because I think, especially for screenwriting, well, for novel writing, for nonfiction, we may have stories to tell, but how we tell those stories is a collection of years of time spent living in this body, in this world, so that we can actually, you know, commune with our stories, right? Like, it's hard to listen to a 22-year-old sometimes because you're like, wow, This is, I get where you're coming from and it's tragic. We need to work on how we are relating this to a larger audience because 22 to 22 is very small. (laughs) Um, So I think you were collecting. Yes, Jason Bieber. How does that as a nonfiction writer uh, work, especially as regards to like HIPAA privacy laws and things like that? Well, I mean, I... I don't write about my patients. Um, and if you do, Good so again, I'll, I'll mention Lori Gottlieb. Um, she wrote this book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And she wrote about some of her patients. I gather she probably used fake names or she had to get their consent or maybe mm-hmm. some of those stories are even, I don't know, fabricated. Uh, we don't know because that's the thing with nonfiction. It can be any of those things. Um, so some people will do that. I keep names out of it but I'll still sometimes tell stories. And my nonfiction has primarily been about me, my experience, or like my analysis on some sort of movie or TV show, which I love doing. So the the concern about that kind of writing as a therapist is this sort of pressure to preserve anonymity, because again, the more blank we can be as a canvas, the easier it is to do the work because transference, counter-transference, like we have to take the shape of the person that our patients need us to be. So the more Mm. they know about us, the harder that is. But Mm. that's really changing. Like in this world of social media and people putting things out there more and more that are outside of the, the session room, it's it's maybe not realistic anymore to expect that same kind of like analytical anonymity that we did in like the 50s or whatever so there's shifts to this and recognizing that you know we all have feelings and thoughts and like you know the way I am in the room is obviously not the way I am out here all the time but right that's something that I've recognized that a lot more people are putting themselves out there in different ways yeah but that was a concern for me for a long time like am I allowed to say this like with that therapy essay I was like am I allowed to talk about my ambivalence about doing this work and then some people aren't going to like it, like that one guy, yeah. and then some people are going to be like, yes, bring it, which is what we have to remember, I guess. Not everyone's going to love it. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because I think um, what people fail to realize is a lot of people grew up in a world where we had to make choices to be professionals when really we were artists still. Mm. And we were, li- were living two lives, you know? So, um, like, when I was working a corporate job for years and that was, you know, the marketing people, like they went to school just to do marketing. And I'm like, I got to take this lunch breaks to go audition. Like I'll be right back, (laughs) you know? And it was just like, it was very competitive in a way. But then I thought to them and I was like, well, really is your whole life, this job, like do you take it home and really care about what you're doing, crunching numbers and like, targeting audiences like is that true so like why should we think that our doctors or our medical advisors or even our lawyers are going home and going wow this is the best work i've ever done all the time right it's not i mean if we're good at our jobs we should be able to separate things and art is like a cure-all for everything Mm -hmm. um and at the same time, writing is like one of the most emotionally abusive careers to choose. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, Paul, if you, when did you, where, where were you in your writing career or yes. writing ambition uh, when you'd made the decision to pursue a, a parallel career in, in therapy? I mean, I'll be honest with you, Jason Bieber, I wasn't in the best place with the creative oh. endeavor, which is what led me on onto the other side path. Like, I, okay. I majored in writing in undergrad, I had every intention of pursuing writing as my career. I moved to New York City after graduating. And it was February of 2008. And it just turned out to be oh, yeah. the worst possible time for yeah. me to be trying to start out there. I, I like did informational interviews with people at like Cosmo Girl and then Cosmo Girl shuttered that year. I interviewed with a marketing person uh, to see if I wanted to do like marketing writing copy. And that was at Lehman Brothers, (laughs) which also shuttered that year. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yep. So it just I don't think that I was able to tolerate the uncertainty of unemployment in that climate before I even knew how bad it was going to get. And so I had to really dig deep. It was actually my therapist who gave me some advice and for better or worse, she, she said, you know, I always thought you'd be good at this work. And so that planted the seed where I was like, really? I wonder why she thinks that because I was watching that show in treatment at the time. Yeah. And I was like, this looks like a nightmare. <laughs> this guy yeah, has to deal with very difficult people just like shitting on him all the time. And so it didn't, feel appealing to me but she was like if you get some excuse me some clinical experience then maybe you'll feel differently so that's why i worked at a methadone clinic oh my god what that is that is where you decided to get your experience yeah i mean i was right out of undergrad and getting clinical experience with that qualification isn't easy so i found this job posting on craigslist this is in new york city in new york city and it was Uh like we're looking for counselors substance abuse counselors the minimum requirement is a ba a bachelor's degree and i was like cool and it was like the pay is twenty two thousand dollars a year in new york city in new york city Uh Uh uh-huh and so i went for this interview and they had me sitting there for like an hour 
just I think they do it to to haze people or to weed people out because I was sitting in the waiting room watching people come in and out and being like, where are my bottles? And I need more bottles and where's my counselor? And I'd never seen anything like that before. So they did that. And then I went through this like four round interview process and then finally started working there. And I think what sort of got me a little bit confused was it was a really fun environment because we were all right out of college. So it was sure. all like young. And you're basically a bunch of young drug dealers. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. It was like the cheers of methadone clinics. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I was I was enjoying myself because I was connecting to all my coworkers. But at the same time, like we had caseloads of 50 people. We had to see, you know, write mm-hmm. all these progress notes and treatment plans for them. If somebody came in with like a positive drug test result on any drug, even if it was cocaine, we had to up their methadone dosage. So it really, like I saw how that business works. Like it keeps people, they don't want people going off of methadone. It's actually very difficult to get the approval to taper down off of methadone. So people want that census to be high. They want dosages to be high. And we're just these kids who don't know what the F we're doing, just like managing these cases. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) It was wild. It's very disturbing. Are you writing this script? I, I could write it. I could write that. That's a good idea. Um, I mean, the pitch I of could, like Cheers I in a methadone clinic is Yes. This is like quite the appealing. best. Can I be in the writer's room? Oh, my um, God. Please say yes. Hire me. Hire me. This is amazing. This is the best story ever. Okay. I don't mean to sound insensitive. I did date someone whose mom was a heroin addict, and she was on methadone. Uh-huh. And she ended up dying at 48, seizing from the methadone, because she would drink on the methadone. And she was at a very high level. Um, <clears throat> so, like, I've seen it, and I know how tragic it is, and I see the zombie state that it puts some people in to be on methadone. It also, like, it can be really useful because I, I did see some people, like, commit so much that they got down to a lower schedule, a low enough dose that they could it's switch great. to something like a Suboxone and then, like, live a normal life. And then I saw a lot of people who had no interest in doing that and who actually were selling their bottles for other drugs, like right across the street in the park. (laughs) So, you know, there were, there was a a spectrum. It's like switching to vaping from cigarettes, I think. What was that? I think it's Um, like switching from cigarettes to vaping. Yeah. It's like, it is kind of like that. It's the more like socially acceptable opiate. <laughs> is it is it free? Is the government giving methadone out free? Yeah, it was. Uh, most of the patients were on Medicaid. Uh, Got it. So, yeah, okay. Getting it. But Medicaid was paying our clinic director, so they were making lots of money. Mm. Yeah, even though they weren't like updating the space that we were working in or get like giving us a fax machine, fax machines still. <laughs> and this was in yeah. two thousand eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think uh, there was probably some used equipment available at Lehman Brothers at that time. <laughs> they were like, this is a fire sale. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Yeah. Probably some new clientele coming from there as well. Probably. It was really sad. Okay, sidebar um, or side note. Um, it was sad on like Facebook Marketplace businesses going out during COVID and, yeah. and like selling their office stuff. And they're like, 
everything has to go. Please make me a good offer. And I was like, oh. I know some restaurants here too. It's been so Mm -hmm. But like making fun of Lehman Brothers is funny. Um, (laughs) Just saying. Um, Okay. So how long were you at the methadone clinic? So I was there for about a year. And then during that time, I was applying to grad school. So I wasn't really paying attention to like, am I getting clinical experience? (laughs) I was just kind of like, I've chosen a new path. It's working fine and let me just go do this other thing so that I have something to do so that I can like tell my parents, hey, I'm in I'm going to grad school so I can like stop fielding all the questions about like, why did you move to New York? What what the F are you doing there? Yeah. And were you all living in a flop house together at twenty two thousand a year? Like, <laughs> where were you? I don't I'm confused how that worked. I had a very, very tiny apartment that I was sharing with a, a former college friend who and it was like as far east on the east side, like we were on the East River. Um, That's not bad. Yeah. You know, you're not close to the subway, but. No, it was a, it was a a solid mile. Yeah, you worked hard for that job for that 22,000. You were like, and work. I had the morning shift too. So I had to be there at 7 a.m. So I was getting on the six train at like, Five a.m. Are there are there a lot of a lot of people rolling into the the methadone clinic first thing in the morning? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it strikes me as more through. like an afternoon rush type of deal. No, and downtown L.A. they have like a they have a time where it opens and they get up and they pack their tent up and they go to be their first thing and then there's um don't ask why I know all this um <laughs> and then and then there's um um. Right near it is a place for them to receive food, receive a hot breakfast. Oh, that's good. But they have to be there first thing in the morning because it closes at nine, the hot breakfast. So they get up, go to methadone, and then get the hot breakfast. Well, the reason that I was told why people wanted to be there early right when we opened is that that's when their cravings were kicking in the highest, right? Like they probably spent all night without anything. And like as soon as they can get their their next dosage, they're going to take advantage of that time. There was actually like only a few people that that were approved to get their doses that early. Like you like there was just so much disciplinary shit in this whole system. So Yeah, a lot of yeah. red tape. Lots of red tape, very red tapey. Mm-hmm. But did hmm. they get they didn't have to come every morning. What what did they do? Yeah, get- a lot of people had daily schedules because oh. you can't send people home with extra bottles if you mm. have an inclination that they might sell them or that they might not be able to use them responsibly. So people have to work up to a reduced schedule by showing good behavior and stuff. Wow. Yeah. So so keeping the timelines clear, when you said you know you're you're doing grad school, this is grad school for therapy. Correct. Yeah. So this, I started that in 2009. Are you writing at all at this point? Yeah. You're like, fuck the pen. (laughs) I'm done. I am like methadoning. I did some temp jobs. So a friend of mine was working for like where New York magazine. It was like a tourist, like in hotel rooms type of magazine. So she was Mm -hmm. like, I have a temp gig for you. And I was like having to call all of their old PR contacts to see if people were still alive. <laughs> yeah, it was just like this huge list of like, are these people still at this company or existing? And so that was like, and then she like threw me a freelance bone to like write about some like concierge service. And then 
yeah, I think I did a couple of things for her. Like I had to write about all of the different modalities of massage and holistic treatments. Like a little and you're like, this is bullshit. I work with methadone people. This is disgusting. You're on like two spectrums right now. Totally. And that kind of writing just felt like a drag. I did that kind of writing in San Diego because I worked at the San Diegan, which was a similar kind of tourism guide. And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to do any more advertorials, you know, like I don't <laughs> feel like I can be that choosy. So I'm doing it. But yeah. I'm recognizing like if this is the type of work that I'm finding right now, this is not actually of interest to me. So it made it easier for me to abandon it and just be like, let me just do this instead. Yeah, there's something I, okay, so I do want to point this out to people there. And I talk about it. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show. Maybe I have, but there's different kinds of writing. And we, we just because we're writers doesn't mean we have the capabilities of like, we are not white paper writers necessarily. That is a yeah. skill. And they, or the desire even, right? Or like, the desire or... Or like copywriters. Right. Yeah. There's like a pressure to be like, well, it's writing adjacent, so I should just... And you should take it. it. You yeah. should take it. People ask me all the time, and I'm like, I don't possess that skill set, but can't you learn it? Well, sure, but I also can make cappuccinos at Starbucks. Right. So, like, what is your point? Like, you wouldn't tell a, you know, um, Michelin star chef, well, you're out of work, and Starbucks is hiring. Can you right. just... Just take it. Just mm -hmm. take it. Just take like the it's, job. It's so, it's so unfortunate that we have such narrow ideas of it because I did, when Jack was born, um, and, and I just, you know, whatever perimenopausal, not perimenopausal, um, postpartum I had. Uh -huh. God, there's so many P's in, in women's <laughs> lives. Um, pregnancy, postpartum, perinatal, I don't know. Periods, yeah. I needed to work. Mm -hmm. I felt this like, Pause oh my yeah exactly i needed to work like i felt like if i if i i just couldn't do this not working thing for a minute like it was a very strange time and i had very bad um postpartum panic so panic. my friends that i have been working with um in the radio business they were like well you can write we'll get, let's interview you to write copy for you know they pull it and they read it the dj's on the air and you can mm -hmm. be that one of those people so i did a trial it worked out well and it was supposed to be eight hours a day but i fretted over these stories and it took me 16 hours double the time it was supposed to to do them yeah and it was like writing trash it was like writing perez hilton headlines you know like five sentences or something and I just sweated it so bad. I couldn't just be okay with like writing crappily. Good enough, yeah. Yeah. And they said, my boss, the editor was like, um, you write really well. I need you to stop. <laughs> <laughs> You're using too many big words. <laughs> yeah, it's, this, isn't, this isn't the gig. Like you have to, you know, and I just was like, number one, yes, I can train myself to do this. Too, do I want to spend all that time on something that I don't see a future in that I'm not interested in doing? Yeah. You know, and that I wasn't was, writing for me. Totally. And like, I kept hearing every time I met with somebody like, oh, writing skills are huge. We're always looking for people with writing skills. And I'm no, like, you're not. great. And I'm, yeah, exactly. Like mm -hmm. what, where and how and what? You're, you're, they want, what they want is chat GPT and now they've got yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Now that's exactly it. what they want. They want something. Yeah, exact. A hundred percent. Um, okay. So you're freelancing. Which by the way is, you know what I, you know, we were discussing that very briefly before we started the interview, but yeah. 
Like, I feel like that is also where AI is like, it's okay. You can, AI can take the, the, the trash writing. Sure. Like, I I mean, mean, if it's something that you don't have a whole lot of people desiring to do or you're having you, staffing, yeah. like fine. Yeah. Right. But like if you're not gonna pay people to do it. But don't because, you want yeah. to exhaust your workforce options first? <laughs> like no, I mean the answer is no, they don't, but yeah. They don't. Not not when they compare the cost and the yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah. It's but um But the robots are say, coming for us all. <laughs> it's true. The robots are coming for us all, but um you know, it's interesting because uh, what a lot of people do, and this happened to our show, is they pick up romance copy or log lines from other things and they just, the source switch it out for their, you know, their own show, which has happened to us. And um, it's very upsetting. So if chat. Chat GPT. Yeah, chat GPT is going to do it. So it doesn't sound like my show. So I know that you didn't rip me off then i don't know sometimes i'm on the border of things like why did this people who don't know me not think that i was going to see that they stole Mm -hmm. my show log line like that's Mm -hmm. weird off my website like you gotta change that you know but what are we gonna do like it's it it is what it is just like chat gpt is what it is like we've got to learn to work with things and figure out how to still be prosperous with them versus against it because haven't we seen that we can't work against an army anymore? We have to work together to figure out how to be better than. Right. Or like, we'll die like the, the dinosaurs. Tech is, the tech is coming. The like, we need coming. to integrate. It's it's happening for therapy, too. I mean, there are just so many mental health companies that are using AI as, like, to give people a resource to chat with. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. There, there are several apps that do this. And it's, you know, I think if we're saying like this can be a complement to your existing talk therapy, I'm not really sure how any of those work or what it's like to chat with these chat bots about your mental health, but like, I'm not going to, I, I'm going to have my reservations about it, but I don't know yet what it's going to look like to have that technology integrated into the field of mental health. But what I am hearing is like, everyone's like, Oh, there's a shortage. There's a shortage. And these are the ways I guess people are trying to fix the shortage, but it's like, you know, what would fix the shortage is if you paid better, or if we normalize the fact that therapy is costly and we had some sort of government aid to help people get real access to real actual therapy. Right. Oh, or cover it by health insurance on insurance. Exactly. And cover it in a way that therapists will actually want to take it because it's Mm -hmm. a fair fee. Like I was on insurance for a few years and it was a very difficult time because I burnt out. I was getting a lot of referrals, but I was burning out because I was seeing a high caseload at a low fee and was making half what I should have been making. And this is hard work, right? And when people are not making the decision to commit to a fair fee, they have a little bit, from my experience, less of a a commitment to the work. So they tend to be more difficult patients to see. Yeah. So, yeah, it just was a whole learning thing. So something yeah. you said sparked a question. Um, how much work goes into like so there's the hour. There's the hour in the room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But how much how much do we not see of that hour? Like how much more is there? So, well, before the hour before you get into a private practice or get into the place where you can actually clinically um, treat people 
you are getting a graduate degree, either a PhD or a master's level degree. And yeah. then you have to do at least 3000 hours of supervised work after wow. that graduate degree. And so that has to be in some sort of clinical setting and that is under supervision. So I did it at this clinic in New York City that was also attached to a psychoanalytic institute. So I got really good training. I was really lucky, but I was pay getting paid 20 bucks a session during that time. Oof. Yeah. Wow. So it was a trade-off because I was getting the free training, but I was not making enough money. And that's when I started at the bar method. Um, but Ooh, yeah. Look and at her segueing for us. <laughs> She's going to steal our jobs. Huh. But no, that... you're perfect. Oh, you're perfect. We love this. We love you. <laughs> See? See? This is what I was saying. She's so smart. And like, mm -hmm. it's like she should be in someone's writer's room running F it. Future guests have to watch this episode. Yeah. Oh, we're the uh -huh. orientation episode. It's That's right. If this is happening. Welcome to Make That Paper. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Bar Method because, yes. Uh, I want to talk about Bar Method. Did I? I didn't finish answering. No, uh, you, no yeah, please, please continue and we so will circle making, back yeah, to Yeah, so it. you were making $20 an no, hour. I'm making and, $20 an yeah. hour trying to get my supervision hours so that I can get licensed so that then I can go off on my own and make no money because I have no patience and then pay a lot of office rent. So that's a wild right. buildup. Um, so yeah. in terms of just each session or each patient's like the workload that goes behind it, the startup costs are a lot more because acquisition, right? Like putting myself mm -hmm. on all of the different search engines and trying to network and get getting found. Once that happens, it's a little easier, but I'm invoicing. I am uh, doing supervision constantly still just to keep sharp. Uh, I'm doing peer consultations. So there's the hour, but there's all the training that went into the hour. There's all the ongoing training of maintaining like my emotional load so that I can do the hour. And then there's just making sure that I, I continue to have the skills. There's also continuing education hour requirements to keep the license right. active. And then there's my office. There's my, you know, the logistics stuff. So. Yeah. And you yeah, do, no, of course. aren't you, are you required to go to therapy yourself at this time? You're not required. I mean, it's definitely uh, recommended, but Got no, it. it's not yeah. a requirement once you're licensed. Got it. Okay. Woofed. That's still a lot. And that's why you went to start working at Bar Method in that's New York City. Yeah, exactly. I was not making much money. And the other thing is because I was still ambivalent about being in this field, I couldn't really shake that feeling. And there was this part of me that was like, what if I taught fitness? <laughs> what yes. if I did something yeah. that wasn't this? That Because like Bar Method was $35 a class. That yeah. was more than I was making do doing therapy. Almost double. Yeah. Almost double. And there was room to move up. And so I was like, I could just do that and work fewer hours and make the same. <laughs> and it's more fun and less bonkers. So, but turns out, no, <laughs> neither of those things. <laughs> no. It's true. Because no. I taught spin classes thinking the same thing. And it was like, nope. I started out in spin and then I was having a tough time, like getting gyms to take um, take a chance on me. I did like some trial classes for a couple gyms. And then our method was like, well, we have an exclusivity contract where you can't teach any other kind of fitness. I think they've changed that since, but they're like, you have to quit spin. And I was like, fine, whatever. <laughs> but I went through their training program and that was like a six month process. Yeah. And it's expensive. Oh, I looked well, into thankfully they paid Pilates. for me to do it. Oh, good. Nice. Oh, nice. 
Um, because yeah, I mean, I don't know why that's actually something that worked out in my favor, but they, okay. yeah, you, like have to learn the curriculum. You have to learn anatomy. You have to learn how the classes work. And then you are teaching pieces of classes for months before they let you teach your own. So all of that, again, just like with the methadone clinic, super fun. I was like having so much fun training. I loved my little training class. It was cool to go through things with other people. And then as soon as they tossed me out there on my own, it was like, all right, good luck. And I was like, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, like all of that community support felt like it sort of dissolved and it was just me in the room having to deal with my own per perfectionistic urges. Because here's the thing, and you know this, Jamie, from teaching fitness, it is very particular and cutthroat. Like it's not an easygoing job where you can just kind of be chill and have fun because people are weirdly serious about their fitness classes. And, and the yes. culture of that studio that I worked for was like that. It was very tight and very buttoned mm. up. And oh, yes. Like, and they yeah. send spies into your classes? who have never taken your class or like classes with the people that you take and you're taking, for me, I always want to make it an experience that is great for my regulars. So I take, would take like their music choices into consideration while building, you know, um, a 45 minute class or an hour long class. Which takes, with spin takes so much time. It like, takes about, I was, I, I was in debt. Yeah. I was in debt from it. Like I wasn't just, I was volunteering as, it was basically like a volunteer position. Totally. It's like, there's no money to be made here. No. But when they send a spy into your class and she's like, oh, she missed a beat. Her legs were off on a song. And you get, that's, you get points taken away from you on some imaginary chart. And you go, I don't really give a shit. Like yeah. that I'm what? you're calling me aside to tell me that my legs were off on the beat of a song. <laughs> like in that moment, I went home to Jason Bieber and I was like, I have to quit. <laughs> I had, I had a guy tell me that I needed to work on my fitness because I was, my voice wasn't projecting. Cause I was doing a trial like run for like an audition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I was having like adrenaline voice, right. Where it was shaky. And yeah. he thought that meant that I was out of breath and wasn't fit enough to teach the class. Wow. And I was like, you're telling me I'm not fit enough to teach the class. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Well, so Jamie, when you were teaching and, and coming to the end of teaching because of the, the bullshit. The cutthroat studio. Yeah. Um, like, for, for you at that yeah. time, you were like, I, I, I don't think you were pursuing it as a career. You were, it was, it was something to not fill, fill the, the time, but like, yeah, it was fill the gap. It was make some money. It do something fun that you were doing anyway because we were we were taking spin classes. We were deeply into spin at the time. We yeah. were spending a lot of money on spin classes. Yeah. A lot <laughs> of cycling to nowhere. Uh, Pallavi, when you were taking it, were you considering it as a possible career or were you, you know, just trying to augment your 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 time and your money? Like, how did it fit in? Yeah, I think I was exploring alternatives, honestly, because yeah. my a friend of mine, the person who um, I was sort of following was a high school friend of mine who was an actress, and she decided to start teaching at the bar method because she was an actress and she needed to supplement her income. So she was looking at it as like a viable, a viable thing to be doing 
in place of something that was much less consistent for her. And she was starting to, I think, rethink what kind of lifestyle she wanted. So she was sort of transitioning over from acting into this full time. Oh, and wow. so okay. I, I had a model of someone who was doing something that I was like, okay, well, yeah. she's doing it. Maybe that's an option for me too. Yeah. So I think I was just kind of like dipping my toe into different things to see like, am I going to like this better? Like I also spend a lot of time doing it. I also enjoy it. But then like teaching it took all the enjoyment out of it. Like I started taking much fewer classes because I just didn't want to be there. And like mm. I pulled back the curtain on this class. And so like being in it was no longer enjoyable, which was such a bummer. Um, and yeah, and there was such a weird, this was like in Soho in New York. And there was like such a weird, it was felt very um like mean girl clicky. Like yeah. no one was ever mean to me to my face, but uh it was this kind of like the instructors are all kind of like the popular cool girls and all the clients just want to like sidle up to them. And there were some people like my friend who really loved that and really thrived in that. And there was me who was like, I just want to come here and be chill and I want you to be chill and I want us to have a good time and then I want to go, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, there's a lot I, of pressure. There's a lot of pressure and it's coming from multiple places I had you would also be required to sub for people. Yeah. Um, and um, people don't like it. They're like, where's my regular person? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of like, well, she doesn't do it that way. Yeah. Or like a lot of um, criticism from clients or yes. riders. But I, I'll never forget, I taught a class and um, it wasn't my normal class. I was subbing and... Everybody in that class, um, one of the trainers came in just to pick something up and then left. And they were all like, oh, she's so beautiful. I want to take her class and just kept telling me what's her name and what's her, how do I follow her online? And you're supposed to be marketing yourself and you're supposed to be like up and you want them to like you. And the whole time they're talking about this other trainer and it was, I'm not going to lie. It was fucking brutal. I had just had a baby and like, I was like out of the house trying to be peppy and happy and like friends with everybody. And all they want to talk about is this other thin 15 years younger than me, just out of college, gorgeous woman. And it was brutal, man. It was fucking brutal. Talk about like, we are insensitive people to people. Mm -hmm. Like we just yeah. are. Oh, yeah, Not that they need to know like where I'm coming from, but like it was sort of shitty. And I was like, Jason, I hate myself. I hate myself for feeling this way. I hate Ooh. myself for everything that just happened bodies all, all the, the time, time. Like clients like i remember there was someone who was like oh she like had it out with one of the front desk girls and she came in the class and she's like i just feel like that girl was so rude that bigger one the one who's like a little bigger she probably shouldn't even be working here and i was like are we serious right now like mm. i cannot it was like such a toxic environment in so many ways and there was such a thing around celebrity because we had a lot of celebs coming in for classes and it was uh -huh. like oh, yeah, it's soho it's bar method in the you know in the arts yeah exactly yes. and yeah. my big claim to fame was you know dakota fanning took her first class with me and then signed up for the membership and it was like oh my god like finally i have something to my name that like will make these people respect me <laughs> right and it mm -hmm. yeah it's sort of bonkers yeah so what, uh, how did you end up transitioning from that and just, did, did it go from that, you finished getting your hours, 
So you could get your license and decide like, okay, I'm going to put everything into this for a minute and just yeah. be this. Yeah. And how I long, think, how long were you doing bar method? I, yeah. I probably taught it six months after I had gotten like fully trained. So I was probably there for about a year. Uh, and, okay. but that whole six months of teaching on my own, I was not having fun. I was just, you know, feeling like maybe this is not it for me. And then after I stopped teaching, I started going back to classes and it was fun again. So I was like, yeah, this is probably not the right choice. So that fitness and I went back, finished my hours, started my private practice because I was like, let me just get this license and like, I can have autonomy. I can sort of call my own shots and see how that goes. Yeah. But yeah, it was very difficult to to do that it's really hard to set up a private practice on your own without a whole lot of support and it took in a lot new york in new york city where you're also like so much of my income was going straight into my office rent until i finally decided to give up the office and transition everyone to remote which was in december of 2019 <laughs> which happened to be very fortuitous for me so yeah and it, at this wait a minute you, you went wait you went you were, remote before yeah, yeah. COVID? Yeah, but yeah, not only that, let's back up for a second. Let's go even further back because you were in grad school again now. Yes. Yeah. So here's the funny thing that was starting to happen as I was building my practice is that I had at least like 40% of my caseload coming in and talking about their work as aspiring writers. Oh, crap. Like, um, this feels bad. <laughs> this yeah. sucks. And so I was talking to my therapist. I'm like, these people just keep coming in and talking about writing and their writing careers and what they're trying to do. And it's making me feel all kinds of stuff that's making it difficult for me to be in the room with them. Oh, shit. And so my therapist is like, well, you know what envy is, right? It's just a signal that you want something. And I was like, Shh. oh, let me write that down because I didn't <laughs> know that. What is envy? <laughs> keep going. So I was like, shit, she's right. And so I was like, I've been neglecting this part of myself. And it's like through some cosmic joke resurfacing in my life and like trying to bash me over the head with like, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? And that's when I started looking into grad programs and I for MFAs, because I also recognize like par probably part of the reason why it was so difficult for me to totally give up on writing in the first place is that I didn't have a community around it. I didn't have mm -hmm. guidance around it. I didn't know where to go to develop this career. So I was like, I could go back to a writing career and try to navigate it on my own. But I think what I know I need and what, you know, what has been clear from the methadone job or the bar method job is that the community aspect is really important. So mm -hmm. I wanted to go to an MFA program, but I still like I was still living in New York City, I was still working, so I looked at low residency programs. Mm -hmm. I chose the best one, I think. The one that I went to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I started in 2018. That's after I had been practicing privately for three years. And so I was doing both. I was doing mm -hmm. that and that. And then um, through that, you... Um, found community so mm -hmm. much so I like to take credit as UCR does we the UCR program people we're always like oh we take credit for that right because <laughs> um, you moved back to LA yeah well that was also starting to be, feel like a long time coming because it just wasn't working in New York like we were it's hard getting pummeled a little bit and I just was feeling miserable and started feeling a pull I started feeling mm -hmm. a little bit of a craving and 
that yeah totally paid off because I think that the rootedness and the the comfort and the love and the safety that I feel here was something that was missing over there. Yeah. And I think that the writing community in LA by and large is so different than New York where it is more of a community. It is more of um, writing partners and group work and workshopping and all of that good stuff. And that and everything in New York was starting to feel difficult. It was starting to feel like pressure. Whereas here it's, People are trying to do this, right? Every coffee shop you yeah. go into, there's someone working on their script because the business is here. Mm-hmm. So it's validated in a way that it's maybe not or that maybe I couldn't find in New York. And that like that kind of like it's normal here. It's not something I have to be ashamed of or like feel weird about or justify. Like it just is. It just and is. That was that was really yeah. helpful too. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And um, I love that you're focusing on writing, TV writing, film writing, screenwriting right now, too, mm-hmm. because I definitely, you have such a strong voice and you have so many creative ideas. And I just think that, like, the next thing we see is um, we see her in a writing room as a showrunner on a therapy show or a methadone <laughs> clinic. I'm just putting it out there to the universe because that's, you know, I mean, look, look at, have you been watching shrinking? Is that the one we're watching? That one? one. I haven't watched it. Do you guys like it? Girl. It's really fun. So good. And I see you on that show. From a therapy standpoint, I think you might have some notes. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, but from, you know, from a writer standpoint, I think like it is, I think the the therapy shows are coming back and as the practice of therapy evolves and we see therapists as real people. Yeah. That show mm-hmm. explores therapists as real people. Totally. Yeah, it's yeah. it's more it's way more about the therapists and their lives than it is about the therapy. The therapy. Yeah. And because of that, the therapy that they explore gets pulled right into their lives in a way yeah. that's absolutely not okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I read, I had like hesitations because anytime I do see therapy depicted on TV, I have like now the psychological burden of having to analyze, like, you know, and then yes. it, it has larger implications too, because again, that thing that I was mentioning about how people misunderstand this work makes it yeah. actually harder for therapists to do the work or to be in the field because we're being so misunderstood. So I, yeah, I read like mixed reviews about it and I was like, I don't know if I'm ready to emotionally engage with this show, but I love Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford. Like it He's just a, sounds like a fun. Yeah. And that, but that's I would fair say, of you to say because my yeah. brother-in-law that I always refer to as my brother, but one brother-in-law is a police detective and the other brother is um, a doctor. And both of them cannot watch, one can't watch cop shows because it's so misrepresented and one can't watch ER or like anything in that realm because he's like, it's so not how it works that it's very upsetting. I would say that this, this show is the authenticity of therapy in this show is equal to the authenticity of science in Star Wars. Right. <laughs> That's a good one, babe. That's a good if you one. Can, if you can let go of like, no, it wouldn't be like that and yeah. just go, oh, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. It's a lot of fun. Because it's, it's not fun. an exploration of therapy. It's no. an exploration of why these therapists need therapy. Right. And yes. also probably like the <laughs> fantasy that therapists might have, right, of just like, I don't, I just want to tell this person what I really think. There was a show mm-hmm. that did not do very well um, with Naomi Watts on Netflix, Gypsy. 
And it was a similar thing. It only lasted one season, but it's like her kind of going rogue as a therapist and like getting a little too over-involved because she needs to fill some thing in her own life. And it's true. Like there are fans, like as a therapist who has other interests and who has ambivalence about her own field, like I feel like I do have these fantasies of like, what, what it could be like or how I would love to behave sometimes. And so I, I, I appreciate it as like a sort of like wish fulfillment kind of exercise. Well, listen, I always thought that I'd be a prosecuting attorney. And now <laughs> yes. that's changed to like, I'd rather be a defense attorney. But yes. when I always say it out loud, I mean it in the sense that I would want to play one on TV or write, <laughs> write that character for how yeah. I would want to be. Yeah. And I sort of feel that way about you, but you are living that life and the other one simultaneously right now. So we, we need to like, we're going to slowly shed out of that and just write yeah. the, the thing you want and want to be as yeah. that thing. And that actually is like one of the things that you mentioned in, in when you wrote to us about um, how like all of these things were really a diversion. Yeah. Yes. And... Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know what? I'm just going to tip it up there and let you head swing. Well, it, it happened again, right? Like, I think that, you know, I come from an Asian immigrant family, Indian immigrant family, and there is just, there is a little bit of a, a limitation in sort of like the vision that I felt like I could have. As much as I grew up wanting to write, I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't necessarily have the pathway or the guidance to help me figure that out. And so anytime I'm presented with like this crux point of a decision of like, keep going in this direction or give up, it's been very easy for me to give up because it Mm. stresses me out too much. And it's like, this Mm. thing feels more familiar because it's more set or it's more respected or whatever it is. So I got my MFA, graduated in December, 2020. And that was after like a month after I'd moved back to LA. So I felt very good and I, took that momentum, like for the next six months, that's when I did that salon piece, the NBC News Think piece, the uh, LA Review of Books pieces. So I felt like I had really good momentum. I um, submitted one of my drafts of my pilot to Austin Film Fest. I got second rounded. I was submitting to all this stuff. And then this opportunity presented itself to be a salaried employee at this mental health startup doing content and also using my clinical expertise in a way that wasn't clinical work. And I took it, you know, and so now I'm doing that. And then guess what happened? My writing stopped because now I diverted myself again by taking this job that I'm like, well, this again is sort of adjacent. I still get to be creative. I still get to do things that I'm an expert in, but I don't have to be burnt out by the clinical work Mm -hmm. as much. It's a nice balance to work for a team. And then cut to, it's been a year and a half. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I just stopped again. So I really got to like 2023 and was like, this is the year I think that Mm -hmm. the diversions need to stop, that I think my mental health career might wind down organically because I'm not taking on new people and we'll just see what happens. I'm not like making any moves yet, but I am actively re-engaging in you know, shopping around my memoir and shopping my pilot and trying to get represented so that I can get staffed. Like, yeah. I, I I have a very clear, I think, understanding now of like what I want and what happens when I don't listen to that. <laughs> yeah. And you're not the only one. Like so many people on this show, I mean, we, I mean, not even that, but like we had um, our friend on the show who is um, 
a, a full-time actor. He works on everything all the time, every week. He's not a series regular. He's a, he is a guest star that works all the time, Rodney. And he's kept his HR job throughout mm-hmm. the his entire career because insecurity, because it's a profession, because it's respected, you know, like so many reasons. Because they let him. And they let him, yeah. um, yeah. which is really nice. But, you know, you're, you're not alone. And I think artists, and depending on our upbringing, you know, um, financially or immigration status or, you know, all these different things that it could be tied to or related to or no support or you know you want your family's respect too you want people to like not laugh at you all the time um force us into these positions or sickness force us into these positions where where we're like but look i am an artist but i can also be this really great professional in this field that is highly respected yeah exactly it's almost a way to like shut people up or not have to answer too many questions right like it brings up its own host of things when I tell people I'm a therapist and then they feel like that's a green light for them to like dump their shit on me. Oh, but Jesus. Yeah. That's sure. something that I've had to like deal with, but and nip in the bud. But it is, it is like an easy thing for someone to be like, oh, well, good for you. Like, oh, wow, we need you. Like, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that has done something for me where it's like, I don't have to explain myself because people know what this is generally. And they have some sense of that it is a respectable thing to be. Yes, so absolutely. Like, done, set. I don't have to talk about this anymore. So there, there is so much safety in this choice. And, and that, I think, safety I've always... It's always been something I've craved, but it's something that I'm not, I'm going to have to tolerate that discomfort if I'm going to move into this world. And I think that I've gotten myself to a place where I can now. And we are so excited. We are so excited. I am so excited. I am so excited. You're going to be running this town soon. I just met you and I'm so excited. I know, right? And I have to, you have to say both names, Jason Bieber. Yes. You can't just say Jason. It's Jason Bieber. I don't recognize it if you don't say both names. (laughs) You're like, who? Um, <laughs> I want to thank you so much because you were so vulnerable and open and honest and like, it just is what it is. Like, this is a this really hard, cry? yeah, this is a really hard business. It's a hard business for women. It's a hard business as we have to put ourselves first to be stable financially and be able to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And not even make what our male counterparts are making ever and losing, you know, going up for jobs that are... Anyways, we don't have to, it's not that show, but to get to a certain age where we are comfortable, confident finally in ourselves, only to be told, wait, you're starting now? Where have you been? And it's like, shut up. If you can shut the voices up and know your value and know your worth, which only comes from other people in the business and your friends who are of age, who are supporting you. Yeah. It's like, you're finally in the right spot to do it. And we're not going to let anyone say no anymore, right? Not ourselves, not anybody else. We're just going to do it and it's going to be great. It, it's. I think what I had to keep paying attention to is it felt bad not to do it. Like it feels worse mm-hmm. for me not to submit my work than it does to be rejected. And that wow, yeah. is what I recognize. It was even yeah. like when I went to the reunion of our uh, program in December mm. and I talked yeah. to our program director, the beloved Todd Goldberg, and he was like, what are you doing? It's like, you can't not be writing. I need to see you out there. Like, yeah. You spent good. a lot of money to go to grad school for writing. Not, yeah. That and like, he took a chance on every single one of us, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. he's the one who chose. So yeah, 
to hear that from him was like, yeah, this is the kick in the pants that I've already like had in my mind. But to hear, as you were just saying, like it is really helpful to have that community and that other voice telling you like, no, your d needs and desires and wants are valid. I see it too. Yeah. yeah. I, I had a, uh, an acting teacher tell me one time, this was when I was in college. Uh, if, you, if you can do anything else with your life, if you can and, and be okay, you should do that other thing. Yeah. Because because you know, this one this career is so so very difficult, um, and you know he was talking about acting, but I think that it applies to writing. I think yeah. it applies to all of these creative careers. Yeah. So, at my in my youth, I took that just to mean this career is so hard. You should take the, whatever easier thing you can do. Mm -hmm. As I've grown, and as I've tried other things, other day jobs, other side hustles, other careers. Yeah. I re I've come to realize that what it means when he said, if you can, it's not just if you're capable or if you can no. get the job or if you're, you know, it's if you can, like if you can be okay with it and if you yeah. can't be okay with it, then, then you have no choice, but to you'll just keep coming back to yeah. where we are right now, where it's like, yeah, I've done it. I've made money. I'm comfortable. I'm losing my mind because I'm not doing what I, the only thing that I can do. To, yeah, yeah, right. exactly. And it's not as though like writing feels like this imperative in the way like I have to do it every day or this is like the nope. only thing I've got. And that's what makes it so easy to turn my back on it from time to time because I have other things, but when I'm not doing it, it feels bad because yeah. it's mm -hmm. like there's something that I have that I'm not exercising. It's like if you never move your right leg, like, you know, like, why am I not yeah. using this? We want to thank you so much for being here. This was amazing. Honestly, I'm so glad it took us a while, but I'm so glad this was the right time for your episode. Yeah. And I'm so happy and amazed. And you always leave me in awe um, since the moment I met you. Thank you so much for for being here with us. Thank you. I was actually nervous Thank about this you. one because your podcast is so amazing and it was a long time Aww. coming, but this was such a pleasure. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. And so great to meet you. Yeah. You too. She showed on Monday, made love on Tuesday, on Wednesday she was You think I'm crazy, so why'd you come?